Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, advertising, pop culture, media, technology, uh, just about everything because in the end, something is an ad for something else. And uh, today I'm really excited to introduce the panel we've got to discuss uh, some pretty cool news that's been happening and also uh, one of our big features that we launched in the magazine this week. Uh, my name is David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com and with me as he is each week is Tim Nudd, our creative editor. Tim, how are you today? Hey, great, David. How are you? I am good. And we've also got Katie Richards, a staff writer for Adweek. How are you, Katie? Welcome to the podcast. I'm awesome. Thanks for having me. I've always thought you're awesome, too. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, rounding out our panel, very excited to introduce a special guest, Angela Natividad, one of my uh, closest and oldest friends and also a contributing editor to Adweek's creative blog, adfreak.com. And welcome, Angela, from Paris. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, David Greiner. And we are going to launch right into some news. It's been a bit of a newsy few days, especially in the ad blocking world, which it feels like has been a recurring topic for us. Funny how that works. The big news being that Adblock Plus, probably the major player in the ad blocking world, has launched an ad exchange to sell ads, which as you can probably imagine, did not go over great with kind of the purists among the ad blocking scene who have already been a bit critical with ad block for being, a, you know, having a bit of a reputation as a sellout. I think a lot of that stems from ad blocks, you know, commendable vision that they are in this to improve advertising, not to destroy it. You know, ad block has always said, we are not about destroying the publishing industry. We're about trying to force the advertising industry to be better and to not be as obnoxious and not to be as invasive of privacy. So they announced they are launching an ad exchange, which will feature their acceptable ads for the for users who have whitelisted such things and said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm willing to put up with ads if they are acceptable, meaning not invasive and intrusive and annoying. And there was a lot of backlash for this. Did you guys see a lot of the pushback for this happening in social and online? 
what my favorite part of this whole story, honestly, is the blog post that Adblock put out where they announced this. If you look at the comments below, it's like a thousand comments about what jerks they are. It's, I mean, just like the optics on this are terrible. And my favorite, one of my favorite uh, quotes was, what you, get, what you guys are doing is like selling condoms that guarantee acceptable pregnancies. Because <laughs> they're, they're calling it the acceptable ads program. And everyone who use, you know, 99% of the people who use Adblock don't consider any advertising to be acceptable. So the, uh, the whole name of the program uh, is, you know, this, it's like Adbusters opening an ad agency or something. It does kind of, yeah, it does kind of sound like a way to erect its own golden calf on the cow it killed. But this could be like a BitTorrent thing, right? Where by merit of being an illicit option, Adblock happens to have more data on people's preferences than anybody else. But it also raises this question of, um, so, so far people have whitelisted a few ads. Can an advertiser pay to have their, to have their ads whitelisted by Adblock? Well, I mean, I think you... You know, there is some revenue sharing potential. They have not been really open about how that would work. Where So, you know, the biggest co complaint being that Adblock Plus is going to make money off this and that they're, which a lot of people view as extortion. Uh, you know, if you're going to kind of block all the ads in the universe and then say, but we'll let certain ones through if you happen to pay us. Now, I'm not quite as skeptical or cynical here as some folks. I, I, I am not super pro Adblocker. I would say I'm not even pro Adblocker in general. Uh, that said, I do believe them in the sense that I do think that they are trying to accomplish the greater good of improving the quality of ads. And you can only do that if you give some window for these better ads to exist. I think there's just, to Tim's point about optics, it really is a matter of the PR backlash of this, is you're always going to have this hardcore, and I would say it's even the majority of users of these kinds of products, that just don't want any ads whatsoever. It's not just a matter of how intrusive they are. It's just that they don't want ads, period. And I think that crowd really pushed back hard against this, even though, and, and so did the IAB and a few other trade organizations within advertising. It, it almost feels like Adblock has no allies uh, in this battle. And to that point, Google announced shortly after that they are terminating a relationship with, with a partner that Adblock is using uh, that would have sold Google ads through the exchange basically saying we don't want anything to do with something like this. It really does feel like Adblock, you know, if they had any allies going into this, they don't have any now. It seems to me that Adblock is in a way kind of making itself like the guinea pig or the test subject for, you know, how we could get to a place where ad blocking no longer is needed. I mean, this whole idea that like, uh, you know, as we talked about last week, the solution to ad blocking is probably making ads that people don't want to block, right? So if, if Adblock is itself, on the one hand, blocking everything that it considers to be garbage, or they actually call it, they actually say shit in the, uh, in, in the blog post. They don't want to, people don't want to see shitty ads. Um, but then if they're also introducing this ad exchange, you know, they could also be sort of monitoring and leading the potential solution to the entire ad blocking problem. And to have that come from the same company, I think, is... is First of all, you know that that creates the sort of backlash, like the what what do you what on earth are you doing backlash from the hardcore users. But at the same time, to have the same company doing that as as is exploring the solution could actually be kind of interesting if they can get past this initial sort of PR disaster. Well, I think they are trying to democratize the process a little bit. You know, they're trying to let users vote and and create this process of of like deciding which ads. You know, it's it's not an acceptable ad to 
necessarily just to Adblock. It's an acceptable process to the users and the people whose opinions they value. So they are trying to make it more democratic. But that said, I, I think this whole thing is going to end up being, in the short term at least, a, a black eye for Adblock Plus. And, and I, the biggest conversations I've seen, the top comments I've seen on Reddit, on Twitter, you know, just about anywhere this is being discussed, is people talking about other ad blockers that they prefer to use now because they've decided that Adblock Plus is basically just out for their money, uh, which to me is a bit unfair, but... You know, it's also to be expected. I, I think if Adblock Plus went into this uh, expecting people to just to like greet them with throwing rose petals on the on the floor, then they were being pretty naive. So let's talk about another awesome disaster uh, that happened this this past week. <laughs> uh, in, unless you were the victim of it, uh, Samsung Galaxy Note Seven is just has become the worst uh, product launch, really, just one of the worst ever. I mean, you see this when a new iPhone rolls out, people say, oh, I, you know, I didn't, people don't like the, that this one feature or that calls sometimes drop. This one was straight up exploding uh, and burning people. You know, you end up with the other day, it was already pretty bad uh, with all these reports of explosions. Then a, I believe a six-year-old boy ended up having to go to the hospital because it blew up in his hands uh, and he suffered burns. Uh, you know, this is truly a, a tech nightmare on a level that, that we've barely ever seen. They're recalling 2.5 million of the devices. I, I really can't imagine that even after they've made the appropriate hardware improvements that people are going to jump to buy this thing, although you can probably get a pretty good deal uh, on it if you, if you wanted. Um, so the question that we, we posed this week is, can the brand recover? I mean, obviously, Samsung will recover and, and it'll move on, but this can the Galaxy Note as a device keep going? Uh, and will people hold a grudge on a larger level? Will they? Will I mean? Did it hurt the Samsung brand, Katie? What do you think? I mean, I think the timing for them is really unfortunate. Just with Apple having announced all these new features for the the iPhone Seven last week, I think that's going to look a lot more appealing to smartphone users and Samsung users. Um, and the fact, I mean, the thing that was heartbreaking about the six-year-old was I think his grandmother said something like he doesn't want to see or go near a phone ever again. Um, so, I mean, it's, yeah, he's like traumatized by Samsung. Um, I mean, I think they, there's a way that they can work to repair their image, but I think it's going to be definitely an uphill battle for them at the moment, again, especially with Apple coming out with, you know, all these new features for the iPhone. I, I've never really liked the the naming kind of scheme of these things. I, I, I had a Galaxy, and honestly, I, I could barely tell you, like, I can tell you every iPhone I've ever owned by, by number. The Galaxy stuff gets really complicated. It's like I had a Galaxy S, you know, 4, and then this, the Galaxy Note 7. I, I do think that one result, one very practical result, is they're going to drop that whole naming system. The next device they put out will certainly not be called the Galaxy Note 8 uh, because basically all you're doing is inviting people to Remember. resurrect the, the conversation. Yeah. I think with something like this that um, basically, you know, there's a much bigger brand story going on with, with Samsung versus Apple. And, and, you know, these, I don't think something like this really moves the needle very much. I don't, I don't see sales being a huge problem for Samsung on this. I mean, it is bad timing. Um, but, you know, the Apple just just had a glitch with their OS X. It was, you know, it was paralyzing iPhones, apparently, when people were trying to upload it. But so, not paralyzing people. True, true. 
Well, hopefully no one's been paralyzed by the Galaxy Note 7. I'm, but, I'm just um, saying that yeah. they, they, can, they can make that. That'll be their new PR response. It's like, yes, but physically no one was harmed. It's interesting to bring up the, the brand story, though, because the brand story between Samsung and Apple is war, right? The people who have chosen sides are really, really deeply entrenched. And um, I think the people that who choose Samsung and the Android platform are people who who like a certain amount more freedom, bearing in mind that that freedom comes with a certain degree of risk. Uh, I think a lot of people won't argue with the idea that Samsung, in terms of hardware, is a lot more, a lot less risk-averse than Apple is. Like, one of the big complaints of the iPhone 7 is that it feels a lot like existing Android phones that exist, and Samsung is a big reason for that. So, um... I think it's one of those things that feels like a big deal now, but this time next year, it's going to be, you know, this will not change the, this will not change the nature of the war. You'll still have deep Samsung fans. Yeah, I, I, I just feel like, I feel like the exploding device is this <laughs> certain bar at which, you know, brands or, or brands or products just never truly recover. I, I mean, I think the prototypical example of this is Dell laptops exploding back in, I believe, 06. And... You know, that was something where I, I've actually sat through case studies where the Dell's team talked about that whole PR crisis. Uh, to them, it was, uh, it was, you know, not to say not their fault, but the problem was a, a battery created by, you know, Sony or some other company. And so they were really paying for someone else's manufacturing error. Uh, that's not to say that in the end it wasn't a Dell problem. But you don't go back and find you know, articles about or a continuing conversation about the people that made the battery. You find conversations about the Dell laptops exploding and the four million. And they didn't they even have uh, they didn't even have the Dell dude around to soothe anyone everyone's nerves at that point, did they? <laughs> was that that would be after the the dude you're getting a Dell, right? Like he was a yes, yeah. he was a nineties that phenomenon. That was nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, this is like Dell. Sadly, that's like the period of Dell that you pretty that you kind of only remember for this kind of thing. But but I mean, my point is between that and the hoverboards, you know, it's just if something if if two things blow up anywhere in the world, uh, you've already got yourself like a, a lingering crisis of, of reputation. But this one really kind of is, is going to be a tough tough bar to get over. I think it's going to hurt the Galaxy brand. It's definitely going to hurt the Note brand. I think Samsung will be just fine. Speaking of another brand that's got longevity and just keeps uh, coming back, uh, Energizer. The Energizer Bunny is, has gotten a makeover. Uh, that was a story we had uh, this week. And that bunny is 27 years old. I still remember seeing uh, the earliest, the first ads. Uh, was that a Super Bowl ad, Tim, the, the very first one? Uh, I don't think it was. The first ads were actually from DDB, and it was really shy at day. Uh, like you say, it's 27 years ago now. DDB came out with the very first Energizer Bunny ads, and it was—I uh, think it was—it might have been a Super Bowl ad. I'm not sure, but it was—it was sort of uh, knocking Duracell mostly. It was kind of a, one of the, another rivalry. Uh, then Shyatt Day was the really the agency later that kind of took the bunny and, and built a campaign sort of based around him. And you know, and Lee Clow is known for uh, for Apple advertising mostly, but, but the Energizer bunny is sort of a, a close second in, in what, you know, his legacy. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this whole modernizing of mascots is, is kind of funny. We've seen so much of it lately. You know, we had the, the CGI Mr. Clean a few years ago. We, we got the Mr. Peanut was sort of given a makeover and we've got this weird sort of CGI Chester Cheetah now. Yeah. Um, Green Giant very, made a comeback. It's very yeah. odd. I mean, it's, it's weird to see them, to see them get a makeover. Well, I, I, 
I feel like what's happened is a lot of these brands tried to move away from these kind of dated uh, and you you see this all the time if you're in the agency world or anytime that there's an RFP it's uh, and we kind of saw this the other day with Chick-fil-A right is that they want to move past this campaign without really maybe necessarily pausing to ask if it's um, if the public has moved on like or or if there's real value there and so they move away from it for a while and then they kind of realize oh we're not getting any traction whatsoever let's go back to the icon or the jingle or whatever we had going that people actually remember and in this case yeah, they said right. that the the new agency is Camp and King and they they're they've kind of been the ones modernizing him um, the bunny now to me, it looked pretty much the same, but there's certainly a difference in the way it moves. It no longer just glides across the floor, you know, beating the drum and twirling the stick. It uh, kind of jaunts across the floor. It jaunts. Yeah, like I don't know. He's got a jaunty little little skip in his step. Uh, which he's also slimmer. That's my favorite yeah. part of this whole story. <laughs> like a bunny. Does a bunny need to be slimmer? No. Is, is, isn't that a mal, isn't that a malnourished bunny? It's a slim bunny. <laughs> Are we creating to be chubby? Are we creating yeah. like unrealistic body images for bunnies? But maybe this is like a flamingo situation where if they too pink, they're too pink, it actually means they're sick. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so you think the brand is trying to tell us something about this bunny? It could be it could be like a call for help. You know what I mean? Uh, I just don't like that it it's like more human looking. I think that's really creepy. <laughs> that really freaks me out. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, similar to Chester Cheetah, which yeah, you know he's weird. in new ads lately with for Burger King, right? And it, it just feels like well, first of all, they changed him from a kid-focused character to like suddenly he's this sort of smarmy, like weirdo. With he was with... always kind of smarmy though. So they just leaned into the smarmy, you think? They just leaned in. They were like, "This is brand loyal." He was always like. Well, supposed that's to be... the thing too. The key stat in our story about the the bunny was that they did a they did a survey in two thousand eight, and there was ninety five percent recognition rate for the bunny. Oh, so sure. pretty hard to walk away from ninety five you know ninety five percent recognition. I don't think we want to spend the next fifty years looking at an energizer energizer bunny that looks like we could have bought him at Radio Shack. I think what bothers me though is that every time you see a mascot update like this, it's so heavily reliant on CGI. It's like oh, he has such a lifelike face now. Honestly, nobody is asking for that. That's creepy. Maybe maybe he should be updated in a different way. You know, maybe he should have jetpacks. Maybe he should be a drone. Why does it always have to be a somewhat creepier cartoon character? You know what I mean? Yeah, it reminds me of when Orville Redenbacher uh, came back oh as, God, after he died, awful. came back as uh, as the CGI. And they called him, De they didn't call him, other people called him uh, Dedenbacher. Dedenbacher. Which was yeah. just... Really I still see him weird. in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> He's nightmare fuel. Uh, that is uh, most of the big news because I want to make sure that we save plenty of time to talk about the ads that are actually worth watching this week. Tim, tell us about ads worth watching or at least checking out on your subway commute. So the first campaign I wanted to talk about, which is sort of an anti-campaign, uh, Angela wrote a lot about it over the last few months, is this cats not ads thing in the London uh, underground. Basically, what happened was uh, an agency created a Kickstarter to raise money to replace all the advertising in uh, one London subway stop uh, with pictures of cats. And they finally did it. And maybe, Angela, maybe you could tell us more about the backstory of that. 
Sure, yeah. Uh, the story started in early May when they launched this Kickstarter. They needed a $30,500, basically, to transform all of the ads in one London tube station into cats. And it was intended as this kind of ironic but also well-meaning thing, like, don't you think... Because to be, to be honest, looking at ads is a lot of work. It makes you think. It makes you think about things you want and you don't want. So their idea is um, everybody loves cats and you can just kind of go home with peace of mind. Uh, and what I like about this story is that there are twists and there's suspense. Like, it started in early May. By the end of May, an animal rescue center called Battersea joined them offering its cats as models in hopes that people would adopt them, which I thought was really cool. But it still didn't quite have enough money uh, to, to, push it over to, uh, to push it over the edge. So I kind of thought that it wasn't going to make it. And in the end, they came up with this really clever idea where they asked people to send pictures of their cats and money to immortalize their cats alongside, uh, alongside the rescue center cats. And, uh, and yeah, they made it. So now it's going to be live for two weeks. I really love that when you first walk into the tube station, you see the ticket gateways are just swaths in cats. They call them cat flaps. And just the whole way through, you just have this uninterrupted feline experience. <laughs> Which is what all commuters want, really deep down, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know what the lesson for brands is here, other than... <laughs> Give your your ad over to a company that'll put a cat on your poster instead. But I don't know. It's it's it is a bit of an anti ad story, I suppose. But but you know, on on the other hand, I imagine every cat food brand in Britain is like, why didn't we do that and just put a little logo on it? Well, yeah, I, I feel like that's <laughs> the the lesson of this is that there is still value in taking the heavy investment in just a complete takeover because people will notice that they'll discuss it they'll take pictures of it they'll write articles about it but if you take two three four ad slots you know it's just not going to have the same impact i i think it also kind of showed that it is possible for official campaigns to have that kind of guerrilla aesthetic and the the stuff that makes you you know i i really thought when i first saw our headline before i i got to read it i i was kind of hoping that it was this you know, Greenpeace type adbusters group that snuck in at night and just shellacked cats over everything. <laughs> and I was a little disappointed to find out it wasn't. But uh, but I think that's the, the point is that you can still have that same impact even without breaking the law and covering up, it, you know, somebody else's work. It helps that it's cats too. Back, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. But I think it also goes back to our, our ad blocker conversation because transport is one of the last bastions of serious push advertising where everybody feel, feels kind of free to invade us on our way home. And uh, so I think this is also a reflection of where advertising is headed, even in the real world. Let's talk about another ad worth watching. Uh, Tim, since I wrote up this one, do you mind if I jump into? Please do. I love this one. Uh, yeah, this came up over the weekend. I honestly just saw it on Patrick Dempsey's Facebook page. because Which you scroll all weekend long. So basically, it's an ad for Cigna uh, that they created with McCann, and uh, they brought back five of kind of the most famous TV doctors, you know, going all the way back to uh, uh, Alan Alda's uh, Hawkeye Pierce, 
uh, and in uh, from MASH. Uh, so you had, of course, Patrick Dempsey as McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy, uh, Donald Faison uh, uh, Turk from Scrubs, Noah Wiley from uh, ER's John Carter, and uh, Lisa Edelstein, or Edelstein, I'm not really sure on her real name, but uh, Lisa Cuddy from House. Uh, so sadly, House himself not in it, which would have maybe chewed the scenery a little too hard. Uh, but you have each of them all working in the same hospital, but this very meta uh, fourth wall breaking where they're talking to the screen and acknowledging, I don't know anything about being a doctor. I'm just an actor. And, uh, it's any one of these by itself would not have been quite as funny or as compelling, but having all these, all these actors that you remember from the nineties, two thousands, the seventies, all in one place really made for a compelling ad. And I think best of all, it is not an ad to go sign up for Cigna. It's an ad just telling you, Hey, you should get an annual doctor's appointment. Uh, and that's it basically just saying, go see a real doctor you know, we're a bunch of fake doctors telling you. Uh, to, and the, the response to this one was really positive. I was kind of glad to see I wasn't the only one who, who thought it was a really charming spot. It's definitely got that nostalgia factor, too, uh, with Alan Alda in particular. But all these guys, like most of these shows are off the air now. So it's nice to see them. And the, you know, this whole conceit that, that they come right out and say they have no medical experience. That's really the hook that makes it work. You know, it kind of reminded me of uh, a few years ago at Cannes. We, we, get, we got to meet John Hamm at, at McGarry Bowen's party. And <laughs> He gave a little speech to the agency on, on Cannes at this party, and uh, I think he'd just flown in just for the party. It was pretty hilarious. And he was like, first off, I know nothing about advertising, so don't ask me about advertising, which was really funny. And in fact, I got to talk to him, and, and, I, and I told him I was a reporter at Adweek, and he's like, oh, that's great. He's like, we've worked you guys into a couple storylines. And I'm like, no, nah, that was ad age. <laughs> I was like, I was like the, the show's timeline has to go to 1978 for you to include yeah, Adweek. Yeah, make it so to the 70s. Go for it. Yeah. It was interesting seeing people who watched the Ad or Red article and commented on it. Um, the witch doctor kind of got the most uh, affection. I really thought McDreamy, uh, uh, who, whose real name I had to honestly look up, is apparently Derek Shepard. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever actually heard Patrick Dempsey's uh, full character name on that show. Uh, but I wasn't necessarily a loyal fan. But I really thought people would respond most to him. Uh, but Noah Wiley, I, I think people just seeing Noah Wiley back in kind of uniform to me and probably to a lot of people he will always just be dr carter i mean he has not physically changed at all he looks the same he is he he is still like 27 years old he's he's actually Um, cgi now (laughs) i mean they they all look great uh but i i think that was the one where you know people just you know i love seeing the comments where people said they literally like yelled and enjoy when Dr. Carter came onto this onto the the screen. So, uh, you know, just a really good idea. And uh, we actually someone tagged a friend of mine tagged uh, one of the client side people who worked on this uh, in a Facebook thread I saw, and he was saying that just kind of commenting on all the work that McCann had to put into it to get all these actors uh, signed on. And I'm sure there were also some yeah, weird must have taken months. Yeah, and so they said that they had a really talented team uh, that was out kind of arranging all this, which is just one of those things even people like us don't necessarily think about is that you come up with a great idea, you pitch it to the client, they they love it, they say make it happen, and then you have to, some you know poor bastard has to be the one who goes out and gets five actors to agree to be back in character of something that several of them had probably hoped to move past. Like I really do think Noah Wiley has probably tried to spend mo- much of the last 20 years not being Dr. Carter, so may have taken some convincing. But a really fun spot, and uh, congratulations to McCann and to Cigna. Uh, and a lot of people said it's effective and that they, they will go see their doctor now. So good job. Tim, what else was worth watching? 
So the other new spot I wanted to talk about was this interesting uh, IKEA spot from Sweden, actually, from the from the marketer's home country. Uh, and it's it's a part of a new campaign. I'm probably going to mispronounce the agency. It's a Stockholm agency. Uh, their name is uh, Akastam Holst. And they do a lot of marketing for IKEA in Sweden. And it's a new commercial. Uh, and it really it tackles this uh, subject that's still a pretty taboo subject in advertising for most companies. Most companies stay away from it. Uh, it deals with a divorced couple. And the, the plot of the ad is that the son is going to his dad's for the weekend. And he it opens in his mom's home. And you see him in his bedroom. And it's all outfitted beautifully, of course, with IKEA furniture and knickknacks and so on. And then the dad comes and picks him up. And it's a 60-second ad, and he ends up uh, later in the spot kind of getting to his dad's house. And uh, there's a, sort of a twist at the end where you, you basically see that the dad has, has basically recreated uh, the, the boy's original bedroom in his, in his own uh, apart, you know, high-rise apartment condo where he's, living, where he's living now. And it's a really sort of touching commercial. Uh, but really what makes it stand out is obviously this focus on divorce couples, which... You know, you almost never see this. In fact, as I was researching uh, the, the post that I did, you know, I was thinking back about which companies have tackled this issue of divorce, and it, it's so few. Uh, Honeymaid had a spot from Droga a year ago that dealt with divorce, um, but that was, you know, that was a spot about diversity. So this divorce storyline about divorce in the Honeymaid ad is really, you know, the whole point is to show a diverse uh, set of families. So that doesn't, in some ways, that doesn't really count. Um, Ford actually had an interesting uh, short film about divorce that we posted earlier this year that's linked uh, in the story that we wrote this week about the new IKEA thing. And that was a, a pretty interesting uh, take on divorce, too. It was kind of a, a you know, a sad storyline in some ways. Um, but it was also, it made sense for the brand because, you know, uh, Parents who are divorced often do a lot of driving, right? Because they're taking their kids back and forth between houses and stuff. So there was a there was a brand connection there. Um, but you know, it's a funny thing. Like, it is a little depressing, of course, that the whole topic, which is probably why most marketers stay away from it. But at the same time, it affects you know so many millions of people who could who could relate to those scenarios. So it's a bit surprising, I think, that we don't see more of this because when it's handled correctly, and I mean, I think this really is a pretty remarkable spot it's it's really nice nicely done um i'm wondering you know i do wonder why it doesn't come up more in, in ads yeah that is surprising because we've had a pretty high divorce rate for a pretty long time but i also think it's of its time like when you think about it in the context of for example mayam bialik talking openly about the way she orchestrates her divorce with her husband and their kids uh, there's this movement now to talk about, um, to sort of destigmatize it, to demonstrate that you can still be a functioning and happy and loving family without necessarily being a family that lives together in the same house. I think that this is still, even though it's not necessarily a new idea for those of us who've lived through it, I think that this is still a new idea in marketing because in a lot of ways it attacks uh, ideas about how we think about the traditional family there are people who would still be a little bit upset about that. But mm -hmm. it's also a smart move on Ikea's part because it's kind of an opportunity to sell more stuff. I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's kind of interesting, though, that um, well, you know, with the exception of Honeymade, which you were mentioning, Tim, that both the Ford and Ikea spot are not originated in the U.S. So it's kind of like, you know, it's not really something that U.S. marketers have caught on to, but it's something that 
impacts, as you said, so many people. So I think that's just like, you know, it's kind of interesting. It resonates with so many people, and yet U.S. marketers have kind of not really tapped into that yet. But yeah, it does that's feel a, that's a bit... a really good point. I mean, it does feel a bit like you're kind of, you know, I don't know, ab using and abusing this terrible thing that people go through, though, when you're kind of putting it in your ads. But as you said, like a lot of people can relate to it. So I think for Ikea, it was really smart. I think you're right. I think it's a, it's a difficult creative choice because it, it, you have to handle it well or else you're going to see be seen maybe as exploiting people's yeah. pain, right? So yeah. Yeah, a lot of, you know, not too many brave marketers in the U.S. willing to go there yet, I suppose. Well, it feels like when divorce was a plot line, I, I can't think of any commercials that necessarily used this, but certainly in movies and TV shows, you know, for decades, divorce was only really a plot line when it was about either the kid or about some third party or someone like getting the couple back together. Like that was the only happy ending. And I think that we're getting to a point culturally where we're more accepting of the fact that you know, maybe the happy ending here is just not being together. You've seen Kevin Smith and, and a few other kind of high profile people talk about this, but I've also had a lot of friends who talk about this somewhat openly is that the best thing that happened to their parents' relationship and to their family dynamic was their parents getting divorced uh, because it made for a more healthy uh, relationship because they were maintaining an unhealthy relationship. I, I'm very lucky to have come up through, you know, a couple that's still together. My parents are still very happily married. Uh, but, you know, I love the recognition that happiness and, and contentment comes in different ways. And I saw a really kind of heartwarming comment about this ad, a friend of mine uh, who shared our story uh, on her Facebook wall. And she basically said that she went back, watched all the ads that you had referenced, Tim. She's a single mom, uh, not divorced, uh, but she said that it was just really heartwarming for her to see the ads are starting to normalize the non-traditional family and just make it okay because she said her son comes home uh, from school basically saying, oh yeah, p kids told me that I I'm not part of a normal family or that, that my family's broken because I don't have a dad. And, you know, and so she, she said that just breaks her heart on a level that nothing else really can. And so just to kind of even just see it getting out into the culture a little more that that it's okay, that it's there is no normal. There's just kind of situations that we end up in. So yeah, it's kind of amazing when an ad can start a conversation like this anyway. That's so crazy to me that people still use the phrase broken family. Well, yeah, probably depends where you live and, <laughs> and the social dynamics. Fair enough. You know, one other interesting uh, aspect of, of this Ikea spot was the way it was shot um, or the way it's framed. It's actually a four to three aspect ratio instead of almost every commercial made nowadays is, is 16 by nine. And I talked to the creative director uh, at Akistan Hulse about this. And he was like, he said that they did that. They worked with the director and they intentionally chose that because they wanted to get closer to reality. That was his phrase, closer to reality. This idea that four to three, uh, to me that four to three feels nostalgic, not necessarily, you know, bigger or, but I suppose it does open the frame up to, to where you, feel like you're a little bit closer. It, it also brought back the conversation we had last week about vertical video. I mean, four to three is much closer to vertical than, um, you know, than 16 by nine. So it might be, you know, maybe that was in the back of their minds too, is that um, on mobile, it's going to look a little bigger too. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess there's something to be said that cinematic perspective uh, kind of it immediately takes you out of it, like separates you. Like I am watching some, something. And you got to turn your phone to the side. Yeah. 
fascinating one from Ikea. Thank you, Tim, as always, for rounding up uh, the ads actually worth checking out. You can see all these on adweek.com, on AdFreak, uh, our creative blog that Tim runs uh, with Angela. And uh, so please check those out uh, if you get some time. And we are going to move on to our big topic of discussion for the week. This week, it is our Media Plan of the Year winners. Uh, this is an annual list uh, that Adweek does. It is judged by a jury of industry leaders, so not simply selected by uh, by us, by Adweek editors. Uh, this is kind of a panel of peers. And there were a few uh, big winners that we've seen a few times already kind of uh, uh, you know, as you would expect, uh, ones that have gotten a lot of attention on the national and the global stage. Uh, the grand prize winner was BBH New York's FU 2016 campaign for House of Cards. Uh, for those of you who don't remember this one, it was a ad for Frank Underwood's re-election campaign uh, that ran during a real uh, presidential debate and uh, looked like a real ad, started like a very uh, real Reagan era uh, ad, and then Frank Underwood comes in, Kevin Spacey, and you kind of hear the needle scratch and realize, oh, this is an ad for a fictional character, one who would honestly have just such an easy time winning the election this year, even if people knew, <laughs> knew every despicable thing he had done. I think people would be willing to forgive it. Um, but this is a campaign that, that hit 6.6 billion media impressions, according to the case study. Uh, largely, that is because of all the discussion that happened the next day where uh, a lot of news shows and talk shows were talking less about the, uh, the de- candidate debate than they were about uh, the ad for House of Cards. Tim, what, what is it about this one that has, uh, you know, it won huge at Cannes, uh, obviously took our grand prize here for Media Plan of the Year. What is it about this campaign that you think has made it such a success? Well, it's a very clever idea. Obviously, the media placement is everything here. And, you know, it's just, it, it must have been delightful. I didn't happen to catch that when it when it actually ran, but it must have been so delightful for fans of the show, first of all, um, to be sitting there during CNN's Republican presidential debate, and suddenly this ad comes on, and they probably maybe zone out a little bit, um, wondering who it's for, and then suddenly Frank shows up. And for, first of all, for fans of the show, and I do think fan, existing fans of the show were a big target of this campaign, uh, they must have uh, just sort of screamed in joy, I imagine. And then, you know, it also does have the... It, it, the placement is smart also because it's a political show, and people who are tuned in to presidential debates are interested in politics. And so it's it's a very smart buy just in terms of trying to get new viewers to the show. Uh, it's playful. It's fun. You know, Kevin Spacey. It's always great to see that character show up. He, he was on. He he showed up in that character. I think at uh, at the Emmy Awards or one of the one of the big uh, Hollywood award shows. I, I just think you know it was a really fun uh, MEC uh, one one for this the, the media agency, and I just think it was. One of those uh, beautiful decisions and uh, that everyone could get behind. It was lovely. Yeah, in fairness, I have to say I really uh, thought this was not the most inspired choice at Cannes for the uh, Grand Prix uh, for, I believe, Interactive, uh, because it just did not feel like a, an interactive campaign. The campaign site was nice, uh, but to me it was a media placement, like a legendary media placement. And so in that respect, yeah. I'm much more kind of comfortable with where this fits as media plan of the year grand prize winner with us uh, than necessarily as like the 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 uh, uh, interactive or I think it was the integrated uh, Grand Prix uh, you know this seemed like a perfect award for this uh, for this campaign I agree it also had uh, the campaign also had that interesting 
uh, out-of-home element where they opened a real campaign headquarters. And there were some pretty interesting uh, elements to this, and I think that probably added up in the in the in- integrated jury's mind as 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 worthy. Uh, but I think you're right. I think I think the media placement here is really the crown jewel of the whole campaign. It's kind of like the doctor's ad you were talking about earlier, David. Right? Like when we when we love a piece of content, we like imagining that it actually exists somewhere in the real world. And when you when you sort of break that barrier and make it seem almost like its universe blurs with our own, that really resonates with fans. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think in this, because there's, you know, Tim described seeing Frank Underwood come on the screen the same way we were talking about people seeing John Carter come on the screen, you know, that it's just, it it is just the, that freak out moment of, yes, you know, see. Um, Another big winner that we've seen uh, making the rounds on the award circuit is REI's Opt Outside campaign. This, of course, was their uh, big push to not be open on Black Friday. Uh, and to close all their stores, and then also to encourage other businesses to do the same, which many did take up that call, uh, and to encourage consumers in general to get out and not be consumers on Black Friday, but to actually get out and enjoy the outside and kind of be the uh, anti-consumerist campaign. Uh, This one has won huge at uh, Cannes at, uh, I believe, at the One Show, if I'm right, Tim. Does that sound right? Definitely. And uh, and then now a big winner in our media plan of the year, uh, and, and again, I think this is definitely a tremendous media play. They, you know, they didn't just put out a video or put out a hashtag. You know, they put out tons of elements. They actually had gigantic opt-outside banners uh, hanging from their, their building. Uh, you know, just a lot of really savvy usage of the media. And then it sparked, ton, I mean, just an almost unprecedented amount of, of buzz uh, within media coverage. And again, anytime a, an ad campaign can get your, you know, not necessarily competitors, but can get other brands to step up and join you, uh, I think is, is a tremendous success. Katie, you know, you've seen this one bouncing around pretty much everywhere. What, what's your take on the reason that, that this was such an explosively kind of successful campaign? I think just the fact that it was something that you really haven't seen done before. Um, and, you know, it's a, and I think the thing I really like about it is, you know, in the write up about this is they said this isn't really, it's not an ad campaign. It's kind of more of, of a movement in the way, trying to get people to go outside. And I think it really resonated well with, you know, millennials, which was kind of their, their core audience. And they did kind of some cool extensions with it online where they had, um, a paid content partnership with, I think it was Mike and, or maybe Medium, and they were kind of posting content to go along with getting outside and exploring. So I think they what they did really well was just kind of really tapping into that core audience that, you know, is shopping there. Um, and just by telling people, you know, don't go shopping on Black Friday, it's just kind of a new idea, something that no, like people haven't done before. So I think that's kind of what makes it really interesting and really stand out. You know, what's fascinating to me about this campaign is is that it's, not only is it not an ad campaign, it's almost an anti-ad campaign. It's, it's the whole purpose of this campaign was to get people to disengage with, with marketing and with, and with purchasing. And to see, you know, to see this whole campaign kind of make the rounds of, of the big ad awards, and, and, and it's, it's bizarre in a way because it's almost like ad people kind of celebrating their, their self-hatred. You know, like, wasn't this awesome, this campaign that got people to not buy anything uh, you know, I was in the, I was down at, at Clio judging, um, at the end of July and, and the branded content jury was sort of trying to discuss how the heck they could award this because the whole idea was to, was to do away with all branded content, you know? 
So I mean, in, in a way, it's kind of genius. And it definitely uh, tapped into consumer sentiment, too, that, that Black Friday is just so out of control. And at least, at least for one day out of the year, we can celebrate not being marketers and not being consumers. And I think that's why it really struck a chord everywhere. Well, and, and to your point about it being an anti-ad campaign, it's not even just anti-advertising. It's It doesn't even promote REI in the sense that they're basically saying, we will not be open for you to come give us your money. You know, So it's it's almost exactly. a, a campaign about how you cannot buy services from us, not just a campaign about don't buy anything or you know, yeah. let, let's have a big buy nothing day. It's a campaign that uh, urges you to, if you really, really need something, you're going to have to buy it from a competitor. <laughs> Good point. And and uh, I, I to me this one, uh, I remember when they announced it as a as a, uh, a winner at Cannes. I remember just thinking this is kind of the ultimate hashtag campaign because it can exist solely as a hashtag. It can exist solely as social. They they didn't have to have a media push behind it, but it's an idea that can be as simple as living in a hashtag in a tweet or as gigantic as this massive multi-agency media blitz uh, that kind of dominated the discussion going into uh, the biggest shopping season of the year. Uh, and so yeah, to me, there's a lot of lesson to be learned just in, it's not called REI, you know, hashtag REI opt outside or whatever. It's, it is a kind of the, it proved the point that you can have a branded hashtag without the brand being in the hashtag. Yeah. We should also mention that the agency was uh, MediaVest uh, and Spark, those two. To those two agencies, so kudos, kudos to them for for executing this pretty pretty wonderfully. One of my favorite things with Media Plan of the Year is talking about some of the lesser known. Uh, so we've talked about the biggest ones, the ones that have already uh, kind of gotten tons of buzz, both in the moment when they happened, and then also uh, in the awards circuit. But let's talk about some of the lesser known ones, which I think are always the really fascinating, especially the ones that involve kind of low budgets, uh, because that's where you really see the creativity at play. Uh, Katie, tell us about what Active Wheel. Well, tell us first what Active Wheel is, and then tell us about the the Let's Talk campaign that they did. So, Active Wheel is a laundry detergent brand, uh, big in India, and this campaign from PhD India, it kind of re- it picked up on a really interesting cultural trend that's going on over there with uh, men having to move away from their families. Something like 4.2 million men having to move the, move away from their families to find work. So it's putting a strain on a lot of families over there who are having to decide between spending time on the phone with each other each week, which is very costly, or buying important household products like laundry detergent. So what PhD did is they found a way to bring people closer together by using the actual packaging of this laundry detergent. And they created this Let's Talk campaign where they put a number on it for men and women to use. They got three free minutes of talk time. So that way, you know, they can clean their clothes and then they can talk to their families each week. They didn't have a lot of money behind the campaign, so finding a way to use a different kind of medium to to bring people together, um, and it actually ended up increasing sales by like 15%. So it was, you know, really, really successful over there. Uh, And then, you know, what I thought was really cool is this came out last year and they're still getting something like 200,000 calls a day on this number. That's crazy. Over a year later. Yeah. That is amazing. I love the idea that that it's targeting people that don't have access to paid placements. And so they use packaging, which is such an amazing idea. Like you can, you can buy the product 
at the store, but there may not be a magazine or a bill, billboard or, or TV around. Right. But you can still you can still connect, and in such a you know t- to the people who are buying your products already. I mean, it was, it was such an amazing idea. And you know, I, what a weird thing I learned in my in my years at an agency is that brands are maybe understandably extremely um, reluctant to use their packaging for promotional space. Uh, so, you know, some more so than others. But it, what's fascinating to me is that sometimes we would be pitching ideas from the creative angle of, or we would just want support for things like, hey, we're now on Facebook, or we now have this, uh, you know, video series, and we'd want to promote it on packaging because, hey, you're already sending out millions of these things. And the brands almost universally would push back really hard, partly because then you get into a different department. You know, you're no longer talking to marketing; you're talking to uh, some other packaging or logistics yeah, it's like division who. Cycle stuff. Yeah, and, and you know those things are printed a year in advance, and there's you know there it's uh, you, you basically you kind of start kicking doors down on some different silos, and things get really complicated very quickly. Uh, but this is an example of uh, uh, of you know sometimes it's worth making that effort and using the space you have. Uh, and another kind of similar note of using what you've got is what uh, Paul Bakery did. Uh, so this is the Bittersweet Pies campaign. Angela, you covered this one for us. Uh, tell us what this was and and who Paul Bakery is. Sure. So as in the case with Katie's campaign, this was also this is also one of those campaigns that was not very expensive and as a result of those creative constraints very cleverly done. So Paul Bakery is an upscale pastry chain that actually comes from Paris and they wanted to reinforce their relationship with women, especially women uh, in high traffic areas where there's growing competition. And uh, because it's part of Paul's brand identity not to invest in advertising, uh, the agencies UM and McCann had to find a creative solution. Uh, so what they found out was that most Romanians, including women, believe that men and women are equally represented at work, in politics, and across other domains, just, uh, just in general. But it turns out that Romania actually ranks 114 out of 145 countries in the WEF's gender gap report. So Paul decided to highlight this unseen unseen imbalance. And instead of kind of throwing dry figures at us, they found a way to make it sweet. So they created these what are called a bittersweet pies, a social dessert, where uh, basically on the very top of all of their classic recipes they created these um they created pie charts and uh, they all had these really cute names like the salary gap cake the political misrepresentation cake and an extremely rich cake and a startup inclusion exclusion cake excuse me and uh and they served them inside their own restaurants 10 percent of proceeds went to the philia foundation with whom paul works to train rural women for modern professions but i think what was really interesting about this was that a it struck this conversation that I think uh, women, when they're faced with it, are very sensitive to, even if it's something that they're not going to talk about a lot in certain circles. And uh, they did it in a very, very creative way where you could actually visually see and even taste the results. And uh, one thing that I thought was cool about it was that they also sent edible press releases to journalists that had statistics about their own <laughs> fields. So that was really cute. We always appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Tim I love ate the names of some of these 
<laughs> I miss out on a lot of the edibles, actually, not being in the office very often. But um, I love the titles of some of these cakes. I love the Extremely Rich Cake, which, which suggested that only one of Romania's 25 wealthiest people is a woman. I mean, that kind of, the, the, the playfulness, uh, the combination of playful presentation with, with serious subject matter is such a great uh, tension. And these guys did such a, and, and the presentation, I mean, the cakes were beautiful too. And, and as, as those, as journalists in, the, in this profession know too, um, visuals account for so much in terms of like getting a project off the ground or even having people write about it. Yeah. And the visuals were so cool in this campaign. Yeah, you wanted to lick them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and obviously it also served its goal of lifting uh, brand perception by forty-five percent in Romania. Tasty. A a mildly similar in the sense that I also want to eat uh, this one is the Reese's uh, response uh, when people started complaining that their Christmas trees uh, did not so much look like Christmas trees as they looked like lumpy little blobs uh, that were kind you, you of. You can you can say it, David. No, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid to say they look like turds, but like they, I've never, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a turd that was quite so triangular. Uh, it, it was like, you know, in this Death Star kind of shape. And um, so anyway, they, they, they did not quite have the crisp uh, edges that one would expect of a Christmas tree. And people started posting uh, videos of it. That, I mean, uh, photos that went viral on, you know, on Reddit and Twitter and people just saying, come on, you can do better. And Reese's could have just taken this one on the chin, uh, but instead they had a really clever response. Angela, you also covered this one. Uh, so tell us uh, kind of how they responded to this one. Yeah, sure. What I love about this is it's just a perfect storm for a brand crisis. You know, it's one of those things where you kind of already know what's going to happen. Probably the brand's going to say something embarrassing or try to fix it. It'll be weird for everyone involved. But um, but instead of being defensive, they created this campaign called All Trees Are Beautiful, which, uh, which is a smart spin that plays on what's a charged subject in our culture right now, which is judging others on the basis of their looks. And uh, I thought that was so, so clever. Uh, they also picked up on a lot of different cultural topics. For example, deflate gate became tree gate. And uh, they did a lot of things that people like doing around the holidays anyway that sort of tied into this. Like um, they included holiday sweaters and cards for sharing awkward family photos, which is kind of in keeping with the whole awkward looking product thing. And uh, yeah, I think that what it ended up doing was in addition to rallying fans, it very cleverly sort of transform the opinions of the detractors like it's hard to dislike a brand that responds that way and uh, apparently sales of the Reese's trees in 2005 grew 7.4 percent and one-third of their sales was made on Christmas week so it really it worked out really well for them it also wasn't overly concerned with you know with PC backlash because the whole idea of tree shaming could be seen as uh, you know, minimizing actual like body shaming or other more serious topics, but they just went with it anyway. And I think, you know, the playful nature of the whole thing, uh, this was a UM campaign also, uh, just shone through. And I think, you know, it was a, it was such a great way, like, as Angela said, of taking something that could have been, you know, a, a crisis and turning it into really just a, a huge win. Yeah. And the visuals, you know, for those who haven't seen it, um, you know, of the, the tweet that went viral, and I'm sure it was on Instagram too, but it's a picture of the malformed 
uh, sorry, I, I shouldn't be so negative, but the uh, uniquely shaped uh, uh, Christmas tree <laughs> looking in the mirror and, and it sees the outline of a real tree of what it should look like, <laughs> it, w- w- what society says it should look like. Um, I feel like I'm being like super sensitive here to the needs of, of chocolate uh, and trees, but um, but it, <laughs> the, the caption they put on the tweet was "woke up like this hashtag thank you hashtag all trees are beautiful," and that's just such a pitch perfect response. I mean, you could have just not handled it any better. I love that the uh, the Reese's tree like. It's a, a literal photo of this like globular tree, and it's got a shadow. I mean, like they actually spent some time making this thing look like it's looking in the mirror. Um, so it just fantastically done, and really kind of showed that you know, barring again, if you're not burning any children or anything with your product, uh, that <laughs> almost almost any PR you know, viral kind of nightmare can be turned around if you're clever with it and no one's being hurt. Uh, And, you know, I worked on a snack brand in my agency life and these moments are very scary when someone starts complaining or when people make a comment uh, that, you know, some people worry, oh, you know, if this gets out, if this goes viral, we're going to be on the Today Show or whatever. And it's like, yeah, sometimes you are, but sometimes you are because you, you know, because of your response, not just of, of what people had to say about you. Uh, so re- really excellent work from everyone involved, the Reese team uh, and, and UM for the win in Media Plan of the Year. Uh, those are, you know, I don't want to spend uh, all day talking about these, although I certainly could. It's one of my favorite lists that we put out every year. You can check out adweek.com slash M-P-O-Y 2016. That's Media Plan of Year 2016. Uh, and uh, check them all out for yourself and uh, see what you think. If you have any questions for our panel, we are here every week. We love getting your questions by email, and we are happy to read them, talk about them on the air. Send those to podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. We've got a lot of cool stuff coming up. Uh, We've got a fall TV preview uh, running in our magazine next week. We've already started posting a bunch of our uh, kind of fall TV looks at a few of the networks, and we're going to keep rolling those out. And we're going to have have a celebrity on the cover next week. I don't know if I'm allowed to say who it is, uh, but it's pretty awesome. And we're going to have uh, all sorts more coverage. Next week's podcast, we're going to have our TV reporter Jason Lynch on to talk about what you should actually get excited about uh, for the fall season and what looks like it's going to be a complete dud. And then we've got Advertising Week uh, coming up, which is not to be confused with us. Uh, Ad Week is a magazine and website. Advertising Week is a week-long event uh, that happens uh, in a few different places. But the one in New York City is going to be at the, uh, at the end of this month. And I will be there. Tim will be there. Uh, Katie will be there. And so we will be meeting back up to have a podcast, maybe have some special content, uh, and lots of coverage on adweek.com. Uh, so keep an eye out for all that. Thank you so much for joining us for Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. Our theme music is by Home, and this week's episode was edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Take a moment, if you don't mind, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from. And big thanks to the panel again for joining us today, and we will see you next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. 
And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.